0: All right, so by now I imagine you probably have got yourself there to Matthew, the first chapter. So um, I'm going to try to cut the study down just a little bit uh, this evening, but I don't think anything will uh, be lost in it. Uh, I entitled this study, it's on verses 18 through 25, Precious Baby Truths. So in these first three messages on the first chapter of Matthew, I'm covering really, as Matthew does, the who, how, and the why of Jesus Christ. So first we talked about who Jesus Christ was. Of course, we uh, spoke about the uh, genealogy and how God was ushering in a new work in the plan of redemption through Jesus Christ and that the New Testament, by certainly no accident, starts out with a genealogy dividing the old from the new and introducing us to this new work that God is now doing through Jesus Christ. So tonight we're going to talk about how Christ came here. Now Matthew, he ties this portion of Scripture back to prophecy in the Old Testament, as Matthew does many times. You don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to uh, read here a few verses from Isaiah chapter 7, because Matthew is going to refer back to this prophecy. And starting here in verse 10 of Isaiah 7, so let me give just a little bit of background. We have an evil king of Israel here. His name was Ahaz. And he has a problem. He has the northern kingdom of Israel, and he's got uh, their uh, ally Syria to their north marching upon him. And he's got two choices. As the king of Israel, his first choice certainly should be to trust that God will deliver him. Well, he's decided that he instead is going to place his trust in the Assyrians, which we know later the Assyrians will just about destroy. They do destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. They destroy Syria, and they almost, uh, were it not for God's deliverance in the time of Hezekiah, they would have destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah as well. So, Isaiah has been sent out with his son here to prophesy to King Ahaz. And here, picking up in verse 10, he says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, it is too little for you to we or is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name or and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So there's kind of a mixture there in that prophecy of uh, the Messiah that would one day come and also this destruction that would come upon uh, the, the nation of Israel and then also on Judah. Uh, by the Assyrians. And if you keep reading in that chapter, it goes more uh, into the destruction that was coming upon them. But here you have an evil king, Ahaz, who was sent the prophet of God, and not only that, but he was sent the prophet's son. So this should have been a good sign for Ahaz. He should have been excited when he saw not only Isaiah, but his son. Son coming because by that youth being there, that's indicating that God's giving him good news. This is news that will not only affect Isaiah's time and Ahaz's time, but will also carry into Isaiah's son's time. But however, you know, Isaiah says, "You know, you are." Uh, you know, Ahaz he has this this moment where he. Uh, suddenly is righteous. Oh, I could never ask a sign of the Lord. You know, this man, as Isaiah said, you've been wearying God all this time. You've been wearying the people. You know, and now he won't even do as the Lord has asked him to do. Just name your sign, any sign. So a sign is given by the prophet for when God will deliver his people. And it's an incredible sign here that the virgin would conceive and give birth to Emmanuel. So now let's go into the uh, first chapter here of Matthew. We're starting out uh, at uh, verse 18 here. So now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this, and here's where uh, Matthew is going to quote Isaiah, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So the doctrine that I'm going to talk about tonight, believe it or not, is uh, one that has become quite controversial In the church, when I was uh, preaching on this over at the nursing home the other day, uh, you know this this is something that's I think, and maybe many in this room would think, would be pretty straightforward. However, I had more comments probably from this message than any other message I've ever preached at the nursing home, and most of them were something like this: "I'm glad you preached this because it." My church, you know whatever denomination it was, they don't believe that anymore. you know one lady was uh was in speaking of the virgin uh, conception of Christ, one lady said that they had interviewed a new uh minister or uh, a candidate for minister of the church, and that was one of the questions that was put to this individual was do you believe in the virgin conception of christ and This candidate laughed and said, oh, honey, nobody believes that anymore. So what I'm speaking of tonight, although it may sound like something that's pretty straightforward, it's something that we as Christians have to stand for and defend. And as this is in this portion of Scripture right here, we're going to discuss this a little bit tonight. So my intention tonight is not only to affirm this, you know, the veracity or truthfulness of the virgin conception of Christ, but it's also to make that defense as to why it's important and a foundational Christian doctrine. You know, doctrine, it's not very popular anymore, I think, for many people to, uh, to study, but it's incredibly important when it comes to our salvation in particular, and we're going to talk about how the doctrine of the virgin conception of Christ is so important to our salvation and why it's specifically in the New Testament here and in you know the Old Testament as well so the first thing I want to uh, say is I'm probably going to get the virgin conception of Christ mixed up a lot just with the virgin birth of Christ. That's normally what you uh, hear. I'm intentionally, I'm trying as best I can to keep it to virgin conception of Christ, and that's really just the doctrine saying that uh, Christ had a, a natural mother, but yet he had no, natu- no human father. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. I'm trying not to mix that up with the virgin birth of Christ because that gets into the Roman Catholic uh, tradition that there's a, a belief there that the Virgin Mary was perpetually a virgin after she had given birth to uh, Christ and all of his siblings and stuff like that. So there's actually a difference between the two. I understand that. I'm sorry if I mix them up and keep saying virgin birth. But really what I'm talking about is the virgin conception of Christ. So, you know, why is this so important? Number one, the virgin conception of Christ is important, and it's shocking to us because it's, guess what, supposed to be. It was a sign for when God was going to deliver his people. So, the first thing is that many people, they they just can't believe in the virgin conception of Christ, but the first thing I want to discuss a little bit is that it was prophesied. It was a sign for when God would deliver his people. So, it was intended to be a unique and shocking event to the world, never to be replicated. So, you know, for somebody that that says, well, this could never happen, well, it's not supposed to ever happen. That's the point. It was to be a sign to humanity that something extraordinary was happening. So why do Christians, with this historic belief, why do we Defend this virgin conception of Christ, first is that the text itself demands it. so a lot of people that will deny the virgin conception of Christ they'll deny it on the base that the text or the Bible is not accurate. I can't trust it, I can't believe it. and with those people it's it's kind of difficult to even argue, but I'm going to give you just a couple reasons. Here of why we could, we as Christians should trust the text that's in front of us as it pertains to this uh, belief in the Virgin Conception of Christ. You know, one of the uh, arguments against it is that uh, perhaps uh, Matthew and Luke, who also speaks of the Virgin Conception of Christ, were unintelligent, gullible. They just didn't know how things worked back then, and they didn't understand that virgin conception wasn't possible. Now, I have to say that we're, let's think about the two people, of all the people in the Bible, that the Holy Spirit, to to document the virgin conception of Christ, he chose the tax collector. And he chose the one that we know as the good physician, right? If the good physician didn't know how children generally would come into this world, I would say he's probably not that good of a physician. And I I won't say anything about local hospitals and stuff like that. We'll leave that out. But but Luke, of all people, should have understood And then I was thinking, what's so unique about Matthew is can you imagine being a tax collector? I imagine the man had heard every lie and tall tale that had probably ever been invented. You know, he's coming to collect somebody's taxes. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't have the money today. I'll get it for you next Tuesday. You know, I'm sure he had heard every lie in the world. So, if anybody was going to not fall to misinformation, mis or you know uh, untruths, things like that, it's probably going to be Matthew. You know, he's going to really dig into this and and understand this. But he's yet the one, the other one that documents clearly the virgin conception of Christ. So there's no way that these people were fooled. There's others that are saying, well, you know, Matthew and Luke, they just weren't very uh, they weren't very original and they copied the Greeks. You know, they, they copied all of this mythology that was out there, whether it be Greek or Egyptian or, you know, some some mythology. The most common is Greek. Well the interesting thing is that Luke actually is writing to a Gentile audience. He's writing to Greeks. But yet when he talks about the conception of Christ, the scholars say that that is the most Jewish part of his entire gospel. So he didn't cut out he didn't, he didn't cut to a, a Greek myth. The other problem that many of these uh, people who would assert that, you, know, this is just a bunch of Greek mythology have. Is that Greek mythology was written in a different way than the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew text. The Hebrew uh, or the the Jews, when they wrote, they would write about real events, real workings of God that happened to real people at a very specific time in history. And in my uh, in my Sunday school class, we have talked time and time again about the archaeology in the bible that every time is backing up what the bible says you know there was a time when they said Sodom and Gomorrah that never happened that was just mythology that was made up guess what they found Sodom and Gomorrah or two towns that you know, match all of the events that had a sudden destruction they even found the the uh, sulfur balls that had rained down upon that area you know so the 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 mythology thing is it just doesn't really hold water because when the greeks would write their mythology everything occurred in some place at some time with some people there's really not a lot of detail there it's it's fiction it's written as fiction so that doesn't really hold water either and then also um, I see my notes, but anyways, just point, point made there that that uh, you know, Greek uh, mythology uh, doesn't, doesn't hold water there. All oh, the other point I was going to make was that much of the Greek mythology was invented after, after the text of. Uh, Of Matthew here. So it it was long after uh, Matthew and the church was preaching and teaching on the virgin conception of Christ that that mythology came about. So number one, the reason that we should believe in the virgin conception of Christ is that the text demands it. Number two is that Old Old, Old Testament prophecy foretold it. We just read one of those prophecies that foretold that. Now, some will go back to Isaiah and they'll say, well, he was talking about Isaiah's son. Well, it said they were going to name him Emmanuel. Isaiah's son was not named Emmanuel. After Isaiah's son is born, Isaiah, in in future chapters or further chapters, continue to talk about Emmanuel. And there's a discussion between God and Emmanuel going on in the book of Isaiah, not between God and Isaiah's son. So there's a lot of issues there you know, with, with that for the critics. There's some that they say, well, Isaiah wasn't talking about a virgin conceiving because we know that couldn't happen. He, he really meant to say a young woman, that's what it was. It was just a young woman was going to have a baby. So if you think about that, is that a sign? Is that something significant? Is that something, as Isaiah told Ahaz to ask for, that's as high as the heaven, as low as Sheol, that a woman would have a baby? There's your sign. Well, no. I mean, women were having babies left and right, I'm sure, in in Judah. So how would that be a sign? So that's not a very good indication that you know that Isaiah is just talking about a young woman would have a child. No, that's not a good indication. The interesting thing is when the Jews, uh, you know, about three hundred years before Christ came uh, and they translated the Hebrew version of the Old Testament into Greek, so the rest of the Jewish world could read it, those scholars chose a very specific word in the Greek that could only mean virgin. So even before the time of Christ, the Jews believed that Isaiah was indeed speaking of a virgin. And there's also other prophecy in the Bible that's speaking of this. One of them that I'll mention is in Genesis 3.15. You know, God tells uh, Adam and Eve after the fall in the garden that I will put enmity between you. He's speaking to the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So notice that the man was not spoken of. Adam was not spoken of. The promise was that This will be the offspring or the seed of the woman, woman only. So there's other prophecies in the Bible that speaks of a virgin conception of Christ. So why should we believe it? So far, we've got the text demands it, and we've got the prophecy of the Old Testament foretold it. And then lastly here, and probably most importantly, is that our salvation requires it. So I just want to go through just a few verses here and kind of break this down. Why would we need a savior that is both God and both or God and human? So first here, Ezekiel 18:20. He tells us that all sinners are under the death penalty. And we're unable to commune with the perfect God. So here he says, the soul who sins shall die. And there's many verses in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, that indicates that. The soul who sins shall die. Luckily, though, God in the Old Testament provided for a substitutionary atonement for guilty sinners. We've spoken about this in our uh, Sunday school class as well. Think of Aaron, who had sinned before God and all of the Israelite congregation and building or fashioning that golden calf that they all fell down and worshipped. Well, he didn't. He eventually died, right? But he didn't die right there as he should have, punished for that sin. In fact, he later ministered before God. Why? How? Because there was a substitutionary atonement that happened, and that blood was sufficient to atone for his sin. So in the Old Testament, that substitutionary atonement for guilty sinners, initially it was this animal sacrifice, which was a picture or a type of Jesus Christ to come. So it wasn't where God was just leaving the Israelite people, but he was leading them and us today to Christ. So he showed them that an animal sacrifice, and it was the blood, the life of that sacrifice that was given for their life. It was a substitution, one in place of the other. But, he, but God didn't just leave it at that. It couldn't be any animal. It couldn't be any kind of sacrifice. It had to be a perfect, an unblemished, disease-free animal. He says, God said in Leviticus 22, 20, You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. So here we have this picture of the perfect life that's been traded for the blemished, diseased, sinful life. God is clear, whether you look in the Old Testament or New Testament, that all human beings are corrupt, they have a sinful nature, and are under the curse. You know, Genesis 6:12 it says, "And God saw the earth So in the times of Noah, behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. You know Romans 3:23 "For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know if there's some that would question that, then I would take you to Revelation the fifth chapter and ask you why. It was only Jesus Christ, only the Lamb that was found acceptable to open that scroll. It says in Revelation chapter 5 that a, an extensive search was done in the earth, under the earth, all throughout time, but none was found worthy to open the scroll except, of course, the, the Lamb. So if you look at it, the rest of Ezekiel 18:20 you'll see that even if another human were to qualify they would only save themselves and nobody else. So here he says the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteous for of the righteousness or I'm sorry the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself god reserved salvation for him for no other human it was reserved for him yet you know we have a problem here cuz you know that explains why why jesus had to have a divine nature so why did he have to have a human nature? Why is that important to our salvation? The first deity has an eternal nature. cannot die. So there's no way for deity to, have, to offer a substitutionary death. You know, there's many verses. The uh, first one, the one that I'll just touch on here is Psalm 102, 25 to 27. You know, the psalmist here, he speaks, speaking of God, he says, of old you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. So deity can't die. Also... Deity can't be tempted by sin and thus would not be able to truly condemn sin in the flesh. You know James 1:13 says, let no one say that when he is tempted that I'm tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So here I, I, I hope we're kind of going fast but I hope you see it that there had to be a divine nature to be perfect and an acceptable, perfect sacrifice for us, but yet there had to be a human nature that could be tempted, that could be just like us, that could condemn sin in the flesh and could die a substitutionary death. You had to have both. So thus, for any sinner in this world to obtain a right standing before an almighty God, whose purity is described as an all-consuming fire, requires a Savior with both human and divine natures. So I'm hoping, we've just touched on a few things here, but I'm hoping that it's easier to see that that virgin conception of Jesus Christ is not just a far-fetched fairy tale that was dreamed up by some first-century dreamer, or lun- lunatic, you could say. You know, but rather, it's this dreamy reality that we can have today, in the 21st century. You know, Anyone who's a sinner, and their eternal salvation seems far-fetched. They have a Savior in Jesus Christ, who's fully God, fully divine, but also fully human and understands what the sinner has gone through and understands those temptations that we have been tempted with, yet divine, pure, holy, and never sinned. This is the very real message that Christians have been desperate to communicate throughout all the ages. And many have even died for this message and it was the message that god became flesh incarnate he left heaven above to come to this earth and as i was thinking of this you know I, I wrote he felt the earth squish under his toes he breathed this air without a doubt you know he is out there swimming in the sea of galilee as a child he learned to submit to his parents Hungry and desirous of friendship, he ate and he drank with us. Exhausted, he slept in the hold of a ship. Observing ignorance or injustice, he reasoned with us. In the death of a loved one, he wept with us. He held children in his lap, blessing them. His ears heard both the accolades and curses of men. He was a refugee, displaced from his home. He understands what it means to be wrongfully accused. He knows what it's like to be tempted of the flesh and and of the devil. He has felt the need for communion with God the Father and reached out in prayer. So my question is, why would anyone in their right mind want to alter or deny the nature of such a God-man as this? But many do. You know, perhaps it's some effort to unload Jesus of his judgy qualities and to perhaps alleviate some of their felt responsibility towards him. You know, if he's only a good human being, I don't owe him too much. He stands about this tall, right? He's on my level. You know, if he's on. Uh, There's another heresy that you can get into. He was was only God and not flesh. He's far off from me. He couldn't understand me, and I can't understand him. That would be just as bad to get into that. But just realize, you know, if you fall into one of these things... You know, without his deity, Jesus can be no savior to you. Without his flesh, he can be no savior to you. And like Ahaz, you'll just be going back to your old reliance on those earthly means while God is there willing to help. I mean, I was thinking of that story of Ahaz as I I was putting this together, and I was thinking, you know, many people are falling into the same thing that Ahaz was falling into. Here was God offering him this wonderful sign, and he brushed it aside. Many today are doing the same thing. You know, they they look at the life of Jesus as it's documented here. They look at the virgin conception of Christ as it's documented in Matthew and Luke and really, you know, throughout the Bible And like Ahaz, they brush it aside. They walk away from God's offer of salvation. I'm going to close with this. J.C. Ryle, he said, Let us take care that we clearly understand that there was a union of two natures, the divine and human, in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a point of deepest importance, We should settle it firmly in our minds that our Savior is perfect man as well as perfect God. Imperfect God as well as perfect man. If we once lose sight of this great foundation truth, we may run into fearful heresies. And many have done that. You know, uh, we've had a lot of graduates this year... Uh, Some, you know, be going off to jobs. Some will be going off to college. If you're going off to college, you know, probably at some point in time, this truth right here in the Bible will be discussed, debated, so-called debunked. You know, you're going to have to decide whether you're going to take a Hazus view on this, or whether you're going to take Matthew's view on this. Because obviously Matthew believed that it was necessary that this king that was coming to that had come to set up his kingdom was both God and both man. So, I want to leave you with those thoughts tonight.